and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some of your anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice certified in EMDR. Today we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to Chapter 7 in the book. Good morning, Dr. Smith. You write that every patient has a complex balance of factors that favor staying on the job, the work of therapy, and being successful in it versus becoming discouraged or going through the motions but not making progress. Could you tell us, please, what are some of those factors? Right. So this chapter really is is a survey of a lot of different factors and ways of looking at motivation Without motivation, therapy isn't going to happen. So, so it's really, really important. And I guess before we go further, since this podcast is aimed quite a bit towards trainees, just to mention that, that you know, life is tough when you're a trainee. You don't feel as confident. You don't feel as sure of yourself. And patients may pick that up and may be critical or questioning and I, and I think it doesn't make it particularly easier, but we just want to say that, that as a trainee, you want to spe- pay special attention to talking with your supervisor and, and trying to understand what's going on in terms of, med- of motivation so that you can work with developing a, a positive, good relationship with your patient, which is probably the most important element in supporting mo- motivation. Okay. Uh, let's let's go on then. The, f- the first thing that we really, really want to emphasize in this podcast is the importance of what doctors call the chief complaint. Right. That is the, th- the, the problem that the person brings in the door. Uh, one of the first questions I often ask is, what made you pick up the phone to, uh, to reach out for help? Because that's a way of finding out w- what is the the little battery, the battery that's going to run this therapy, it's, it's the person's distress. It's whatever it is that's bothering them. And early, early career therapists have a tendency to kind of take a general statement of the chief complaint, like, oh, I'm depressed or I'm unhappy as good enough. And that's not good enough. It's really important to understand in, in as sharp detail as you possibly can exactly what was the person's experience. That's going to get you inside their their suffering, inside their pain, and that's going to create empathy, and empathy is going to help with a bond. So the better you understand what's, what brought the person there, the, the stronger the motivation is going to be. All right. There's a paragraph in the book called Locating the Problem because every once in a while somebody comes in who doesn't really think of the problem as being them. They think that it's the, the spouse or the parent or, or the, the uh, terrible boss at work and, and don't quite realize that therapists can't fix parents or bosses. We can only help people 
with the way they cope with the challenges that they have in their life. So what about hopes and expectations? How do we uh, approach those or uh, create them in the case of hope in the beginning of therapy? Uh, hope is, is an extraordinarily powerful thing. Uh, hope meaning the expectation that something good is going to happen. And so people come to therapy with some hope. And the way we handle that has a, a tremendously powerful impact on their motivation. If we undersell what's, what the therapy can do and, and dash their hopes, let's say, then they're going to feel really miserable. On the other hand, if we promise too much, the hope may rise up and, and be a strong motivating factor until there's a disappointment and, and then we're in trouble. So I think the way to say this is managing expectations is another important element in, in building a, a solid uh, basis for therapy and, and maintaining a good, strong motivation. It's, it's important also early on in therapy to be asking your patient about their expectations. Mm -hmm. pa patients don't always tell you what they expect. And if you don't ask, and there are expectations that you're not meeting, then you may run into trouble before you even realize what's happened. And the way to ask that is, well, did you have any thoughts about what you thought was going to happen here? Maybe at the end of the first or second session, you might ask a question like that. Uh, there are some patients who come into therapy um, because they're mandated into therapy, and their motivation is is slim, uh, if next to none. And I'm just wondering, how do you address the lack of motivation in mandated clients? Sometimes, especially when a person is, is kind of talked into or pressured into coming to therapy, that they may not be very much motivated. And, and people with addictions in particular very often have no idea that life could be any better without their, their substance. And so, so they're coming with a, a high degree of uh, questioning and resistance, and that's why later in the chapter we'll talk about outside motivation that, that may be necessary at the beginning until we can kind of demonstrate that, that, uh, that treatment actually does make life better. You mentioned also the inner child as being a major player in motivation. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. Well, this is so this is really, really critically important. And later on, there'll be a chapter on working with the inner child. But not infrequently, when people have trouble early in their life and, and it can't be resolved, they have a problem that they, that they can't really fix, what happens is it's as if a, a, an inner child got left behind who's still waiting to solve the problem in the way that children solve problems. How do children solve problems? They look for a grown-up who's going to do the job. And that grown-up sometimes is the therapist. But this kind of expectation is one that patients don't always tell their therapist about. They may not even be aware of it. And so it, it not infrequently happens that there's a childlike agenda for solving an old problem that isn't even spoken out loud and the patient may not even be aware of it. Another word for this is transference, 
But I think uh, looking at an inner child as having a, a hidden agenda is a much more richer and more valuable way to look at this. So, uh, for example, uh, a patient uh, went to a, a therapist who had a more psychoanalytic training, and the patient said, you know, I really need a little bit, this is an adult patient, it feels like I need a little bit of help in kind of understanding the ropes of adult life. And the therapist said, I, I don't understand, but that's not what I do here. I'm, I'm an analyst, and, and I don't tell people how to live their lives. Uh, you have to figure that out. And that was the end of, of effective therapy, because the patient, without saying it, had, a, had an agenda left over from an unfortunate childhood where he was kind of waiting for somebody to do that, and he felt rejected and and really hurt. And so he lost faith in the therapist, but obediently he kept on coming to sessions and spending his money until finally the, the therapy pooped out and, and and didn't go any further. And, and, you know, that's where I started to see him. But What would have been a better response from that psychoanalyst? So it would have been better either to either to say, you know, that's really, really interesting that um, I hear what you want, and and let's try to understand what that's about. And before we just jump right in and and help you out with these things, what are the questions that you have? What are the things that you feel unsure of yourself about? What what exactly are you looking for? That might have worked, mm. but I think it wouldn't have. And and what we actually did was, I said, you know. Maybe I can help a little bit, and I'm glad to when I can. So let's go ahead and 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 you know ask your questions, and we'll try our best to help you out. But you know, I think there's something interesting going on here. And went on to talk about why he might still, as a competent adult, have been having this sense of 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 unsureness about himself and and seeking some kind of guidance. Mm-hmm. So in the end, we got the understanding of it. And, and, you know, did it, was it harmful that I helped him out a little bit? No. And very rapidly, what happened was he realized that he knew more about his life than I did. And, and he was really the expert. And so, so he felt some, now that he had permission to be his own guide. While at the same time having a, a stronger bond with you. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So we mentioned hope. But tell us a little bit about what is the seeking system. Okay. Well, in, in research a few decades ago, uh, researchers began to discover in the brain something they called the motivational system. And they realized that, for example, addictive substances uh, lit up those motivational centers and made people want more of that drug. Well, there's a wonderful researcher named Jak Panksepp, who died recently. He's best known perhaps for tickling mice and, and listening to their, uh, their gleeful laughter, which was at a pitch too high for the human ear to hear. But if you, if you use technology to bring it down, he could listen to the, the mice uh, responding to his, um, his tickling. And he also really felt that, that mammals do experience feelings, where a lot of, of his... Uh, research colleagues were were pretending that they don't. We all know that animals feel things the way we do, right? right. Um, so in any case, that's a, that's a scientific debate we won't get into. But Dr. Panksepp 
identified the motivational system as the seeking system. He put it all in capitals, and he describes this system as a very flexible function in the, in the brain that can grab onto any goal. It might be getting the ball in the next hole in golf, or it might be a, a lifelong ambition to achieve something. Uh, but these goals provide a lot of pleasure when we feel like we're on the trail. On the other hand, when, when we get discouraged, then when this system gets uh, down-regulated, it causes a feeling of dis- depression. Uh, we call it discouragement. Mm-hmm. And when it gets over-activated, uh, as when people take too much cocaine, then it begins to produce paranoia and psychosis. So, so it's a very uh, important, flexible system, and it's a good thing to realize that when we're, when we're working in therapy, that we, that we have goals, that the goals are things that, we, that are conscious and, and on the surface, and we can negotiate those with our patient and kind of be aware if something is undermining a goal that, and we can expect some discouragement, or if the patient seems to be making some progress, we can point that out, and that's going to enhance their sense of liveliness and pleasure and interest uh, in, in moving forward. So initially then, as a therapist, when you are identifying with the patient the goals of therapy, you would want to break them down into manageable modules, right? So that you, you approach them mm-hmm. one at a time in order to optimize that seeking system to avoid being, becoming discouraged mm-hmm. and therefore depressed. Right, absolutely. And it's also interesting to point out that when we achieve our goal, then the system kind of powers down and the pleasure of actually arriving at something is a whole different pleasure from the seeking pleasure, as, as this is you know, well chronicled in literature, and we all know this from our own experience, but, but biochemically, um, it's a real phenomenon at the level of the brain. Would that explain, for instance, the, the overachiever who is constantly striving, going from one goal to the next, that the seeking system is overactive? I think that usually what happens in that kind of situation is the person is trying to achieve something as a childlike solution to some painful problem, to take away some piece of pain. I'm thinking of a very high-achieving patient uh, who was constantly put down by her father. Her mother supported the father, was constantly telling her that she would amount to nothing, and you know now she's a high-level executive and is constantly looking for new achievements. So that becomes something that we can talk about in therapy, and there's a process of hopefully making a transition from this ever-increasing ever wish for to get more kudos and, and, more, uh, and higher positions, and instead moving towards more satisfaction in the things that she does. Right, driven by an an inferiority complex, right? Right, More of an Adlerian point of view. Yeah. So back to motivation then. What about outside motivation? So yes, outside motivation. So a way to think about about motivation, about about patients, is that they're part of a system or a series of systems. Patients have families, they have jobs, they have 
they have peer groups and friends, they have spouses, and all of those people in, in our circle can, can have an influence on our motivation. And as a therapist, we need to kind of keep an ear out for that and, and realize that those things may be important factors, especially when the patient's own motivation is not so strong. And I, I already mentioned addictions where people can't really see what life might be like without their addiction. Uh, teenagers also are very often have limited motivation because they just want to feel comfortable. And being a teenager is not very comfortable at all. And so frequently it, it takes some, uh, some push from outside uh, for a teenager to be willing to engage in therapy. And so, so there are times when outside motivation is really necessary and may make the difference between therapy working out and not. There was a time, some time ago, when the question was more, is the patient suited to the therapy than is the therapy suited to the patient? Uh, I think now we see that there are many instances where even if we have to start out with outside motivation, it, it still does give us, um, give us a beginning. Does, can therapy go all the way to the end with purely outside motivation? I don't think so. I think at some point the person has to see that that what's going on is really to their benefit and is really going to help them. So one of our jobs as therapists is to help people experience positive results from their therapy. Right. And then perhaps also to to help the patient understand that in terms of outside motivations, that consequences of behavior are real and unavoidable. And then once the patient comes to, to a full understanding of that, perhaps the motivation can then transition from an external one to an internal one. Right. Um, I, I will say that uh, something I've learned recently is, is the importance of positive motivation. The negative stuff doesn't work so well because it gets everybody feeling uncomfortable and then we don't learn as well. Mm -hmm. So the more we can help somebody experience and envision positive consequences of, of how life might be, the, the better that is for their, uh, for their motivation. Sometimes, Dr. Smith, there are times when we don't have real leverage and external motivation is lacking. What do we do then? Well, I, I, so I think of the three kinds of motivation, and, and I, I kind of came to this in working with people with addictions who really weren't very motivated. So there's self-motivation, and the person may say, yes, I really, really want to um, get sober, I want to do this, but it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of staying power, because when the addiction kicks in, that kind of motivation can go away very quickly. It's pretty easy for people to motive, to rationalize their dysfunctional behavior. So, so when it's there, I, I applaud self-motivation and, and it's good to have, but I don't really count on it. You used a word leverage, and, and leverage is another word for outside motivation. When somebody says, you know, not that you, you have to get sober or you have, to, uh, you have to go into treatment, but more effective is something like, well, you can, it's your choice to make, but if you choose to continue with your, your addiction and fail to come into work every Monday, then, you know, we're going to have to let you go. Or the family who says if you, if you continue to insist on, on going on alcoholic benders every few weeks, 
we're, we're just going to have to walk away from you. We're not going to be able to uh, continue to, to support you and to support your activities. So we really think it would be better for you to, to go into treatment, but it's your choice. That works a lot better than telling people what they have to do. Right. But when there is no leverage. When there is no leverage, then I call it seduction. And, and it's actually a very, very interesting mechanism. We'll say to somebody, well, it's your choice, and, and you're entirely free to do what you, what you want. But, you know, it looks to me like, you're, like things aren't going to get better until you do address this thing. But I'll tell you what. If, if you want to continue, just go ahead and give me a call if you feel like you'd like to engage in treatment at some point in the future. But for now, it's, you're on your own. So essentially, you're you're showing that person that you're willing to disengage and that you're ready to walk away without right. anger or spite. Right. In Al-Anon, they call that detach with love, mm-hmm. and and it can really be a, a a powerful message because the one thing that people with addictions uh, want almost as much, maybe more than their addiction, is to hold on to their human connections. And so when they feel those slipping through their fingers, that may make them think twice about it. So why do patients stay in therapy? They stay because they experience something positive. Patients can sustain maybe two or three sessions that are pretty tough and don't give them very much to feel good about. Uh, But beyond that, I think... It, the likelihood of somebody sticking with with therapy, going through the effort of getting there, maybe paying a significant amount of money for it. If, it's, if it doesn't give them a good feeling, it's not going to work. And so I think we need to pay very close attention to making sure that, that we do uh, get some benefit or having a really cogent explanation of why the going gets, is so tough. Sometimes trauma patients, it feels like fighting a war that you have that the reward for winning a battle is that you have another battle to to fight, and you only get the real benefit at the very end of it. That's a hard thing. So sometimes motiv- maintaining motivation like that is is quite challenging. And so you you list um, in the book uh, pages seventy one and seventy two uh, for our listeners working with the book. Uh, a number of reasons that people would stay, such as hope and positive reinforcement. Um, can you talk to us about a few more of these? Sure. So, so there's a number of, of little factors that are worth pointing out. First, patients don't quit just like that. They usually, they usually think about it, and, and there's usually a period of time when they're kind of contemplating whether is this really worth it for me. And you're very likely to see some signs, maybe coming late or not being quite so enthusiastic. It's imperative for a therapist to ask, to ask what's going on and and bring that up. Doing that before the person decides to leave treatment is is way more effective than when when it's too late. So for the trainee, in terms of asking, for the trainee who mm-hmm. is uh, unsure of his skills and uh, uh, presence in the therapeutic room, how do you ask a patient that? How are we doing? Uh, is, is this therapy working for you? Does it feel right to you? Are there, things that, are there questions you have? Are there things that have been disappointing? 
not being afraid to ask. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's right. And there are, there are some rating scales. There are some therapists who give their patient a, a rating scale to fill out at the end of every session. That's not a bad idea. And also the statistics show that therapists tend to think things are going better than they really are and and think that their patient has a more positive impression of the therapy than than when you actually ask the patient. So it's definitely a good thing to uh, to ask. There, there are some other factors. One of the things that we're trying to do as therapists is since, since we're trying to help people let go of some mechanism that they have for avoiding uncomfortable feelings. In other words, we're, we're taking away some protection. And so the instinctive part of the mind naturally wants to hold on to its protection. So so there's, there's motivation in the other direction, motivation to keep things the same, and, and we need to help people understand that and understand that it's coming from a place that isn't really in the, in the patient's best interest, even though it may be very, um, very powerful. There are also situations where biology reinforces the pathology, like addictions, where, where the, the addictive substance really does feel good, and the person is reluctant to let go of that. There are other situations where uh, timing might be a factor. Where, so. where at the point where you where you start therapy, uh, there may be a lot of really negative factors going on, and they're going to last for a while before you really see the light at the end of the tunnel, and and so that can make it uh, make it more difficult. Okay, how does internal resistance to change figure in all this? That's a, that's a natural factor, and, and that's the way I explain it, is that, that change, the, the, the patient perceives change as leading to some kind of painful experience, and that may not be conscious at all. So the more we can bring that, what's going on, out to the surface, then the more likely it is that we can, can form an alliance with the adult part of the patient and think of ourselves as as two adults and we're going to take the childlike part of the patient that wants to keep the pathology going we're going to take that child by the hand in a gentle and compassionate way and and try to help the the patient move that child into a more positive stance and and ease the way to letting go of whatever resistance there might be so that, that would fit into the uh, internal family systems model where we identify mm-hmm. the various parts. Even if somebody isn't, even if a therapist isn't particularly trained in internal family systems, the inner child concept is extremely valuable. So that's one, one inner entity um, that I, I would strongly recommend as a, as a way of thinking about what's going on. Mm-hmm. So the role of the therapist as motivator is is a tricky balance to strike, isn't it? Where too much engagement of the patient can be threatening, and maybe the patient feels that the therapist doesn't understand his or her fears, and too little may uh, cause the inner child to feel neglected or not really cared for. Exactly. Uh, the... Uh, kind of the traditional uh, way of doing therapy involved a, a quote neutrality, and I think that was largely a, a function of 
of Victorian science where people believed that the therapist wasn't, uh, was really objective and had no influence on the patient. The therapist was kind of this, this blank slate. And the truth is, I think now we know that therapists have an, a tremendous influence, whether, uh, uh, whether they say things or not or say very much or not. Uh, is the therapist a very, is very much a part of a, a relationship, a dyad. And so then if, if we as a therapist are engaged with our patient, we're going to care about their pa- making progress. And that brings up this very tricky kind of balance because if you care too much, then you begin to own the positive motivation. You begin to be the one who's pushing for the person to make changes. And what will happen then is that the patient will let you uh, carry the flag for progress. And what will they do? They'll identify with the other side. Uh, a, a dangerous and, and significant example of that is when patients talk about suicide. If as a therapist you get engaged and you say, well, please, please don't do that. That would be terrible. I, I don't want you to, to commit suicide. Then the patient will, will um, take on the job of completing the suicide and will let you be responsible for saving their life. And you're not going to be able to do that because you can't control what the patient does. So what do you do? So Harry Stack Sullivan had a very nice way of thinking about this. He said that the therapist is a participant observer. We often get drawn into the role of participant, and we have to be pretty quick to realize when we have become, when we care more than the patient cares, when we've become too much of a participant, then we have as therapists the prerogative to step back and say, you know, wait a minute. This is your life, and it's your choice, and, and I can't really tell you what to do. And, um, but I think that there's a part of you that would like to stay alive, and maybe there's a part of you that doesn't want to, and let's take a look at those two. Let's, let's look at both sides of it, um, because ultimately you're the one who's going to have to decide. Right, and so then naturally, though, this is done when it's ideation that's being mm-hmm. expressed if there's right. a plan if the, and if means, the person then... is is hell-bent to uh to commit suicide then it's time to use the powers that society gives us to make sure that nothing uh, bad happens and to um to save um uh, save a life mm-hmm. so tell us about cat and mouse, which is uh, a model that you you express on page 74 that is actually fascinating. Okay, so cat and mouse comes especially working with adolescents uh, where they have... are often mandated clients. Okay, okay. (laughs) Mandated by their parents, identified as uh, being wrong. Yes. So for starters, adolescents have a very strong ambivalence about growing up versus staying little. And, and if you're going to be little, then the parents become responsible for, for um, maintaining safety and things like that. If you grow up, then you're going to have to fight with yourself. There's part of you that wants to go in and party all night and take big risks, and another part of you that wants to be safe and wants to actually become an adult. That ambivalence is uncomfortable. It's very hard to be in conflict with oneself. And so... Adolescents will very easily 
split those roles in a, in a way very similar to what I was talking about in terms of suicide. They'll split the role if the therapist or the parent is willing to take on the role of being the authority, then the adolescent will let the parent or therapist be the cat, the one who's responsible, who's trying to make something happen. And meanwhile, the mouse has all of the power and the, the adolescent will represent all of the goals of uh, taking risks and of... Of showing of, up late and breaking rules and exactly. doing as he or she pleases. Right. And, and so... So what we need to do as therapists is help the is keep that conflict contained within the adolescent. So so we need to be very careful to not take on too much the role of authority in working with an adolescent or a mandated patient. Look, you know, it's 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 your life. You can do what you want, but there may be consequences to it. And have you thought about those? And and let's let's talk about what's going to happen if you do this. What's going to happen if you do that? A classic situation is the adolescent says to the parents, "You don't trust me. You really need to trust me and and give me more control over my life. I'm growing up. I'm 17 already, and and I should be able to stay out past midnight if I think that's the right thing to do." And and so the parents say, "All right. Well, we'll we'll push the the curfew back to one o'clock." What does the adolescent do? I call this the adolescent dance. Adolescent comes back at 3 o'clock right. and has a lame excuse, and then there's a big argument. What do you mean I, I have a perfectly valid excuse and, and, and you're not trusting me? And what's going on is the adolescent is compelled to push the responsibility back onto the parents to reinstate the curfew and to, and to retake control because it's really uncomfortable to control yourself. Yes, self-regulation is difficult. It is. I, I wonder if you would be willing in this podcast to say something about young adults who fail to launch, uh, who come uh, home from college or don't even bother to go to college and live in their parents' basements. What kind of cat and mouse game are they playing then? Well, th- that's a that's a um, an issue that's that's dear to my heart. I, I do a lot of work, especially with parents. Because, yes, young adults nowadays remain adolescent, can remain adolescent into their 30s and still be struggling with those issues of I want to do what feels good and I don't want to have to regulate myself. I don't want to have to be responsible and so on. And and by acting irresponsible, then they push the responsibility onto the parents. So... What I do when I work with the parents is help them to understand how not to take responsibility, how to, how to leave the young person to make their own decisions and learn from their experience, even if they're very tempted to rescue their, their young adult uh, from, from his or herself. And I also work with parents to use leverage to say, okay, these are the rules and these are the consequences um, and you make your own decision about what you want to do, but these are the things that are going to happen. This is what you can expect. And when that's done in a sort of impersonal, rule-based way, instead of having a big argument every time, uh, it's a lot more effective, and it creates a framework for the young person that's a little more in line with the way actual adult life works. Which is really another form of detaching with love. Precisely, right. yes. Good point. So you also mentioned um, 
that the patient is part of a system. Right. Uh, Murray Bowen was was one of the main originators of the, the system's point of view about about families and about patients, and, and, and systems are really, really powerful. I'll give one example is enabling. If a, if a family is either encouraging some bad behavior, let's say it's an addiction again, by you know, helping the, the make sure that there's a supply of the substance or providing the money for it or not watching at, while, while the person with an addiction is stealing money to go and, and, and take care of their addiction, that that kind of enabling is so powerful that people really can't, if they have their own ambivalence, they really can't fight against it. So I think of enabling as something that can be an absolute uh, negative factor that that will that will prevent therapy from being effective. And another kind of enabling is the kind where somebody is always arguing with the addict, let's say, about their bad behavior and berating them and giving them a hard time as if that behavior were a choice when it really is compulsive. And that gives the addiction an excuse as well. See, I have to use the substance because everybody's giving me such a hard time and life is so miserable and I'm, I'm a victim. And if only they would quit fighting with me, then I, then I would be able to um, make my own decision about this. Okay. So then regarding the system, you say that Emotional systems tend to maintain the status quo, and you differentiate between an open system and a closed system. That's a, that's a super important concept. Open systems are ones like political parties where you can come and go and anybody can have an influence on the party, and um, even if they're a newcomer. Whereas closed systems, uh, the classic one is a cult, where it's, it's not that easy to join, and once you've joined... It's really, really dangerous and hard to, uh, to get away from the cult. But some other examples, organized crime works that way. Uh, cliques in high school work that way, where you have to give up a lot of your power and autonomy to be part of the clique, and you have to, you have to obey the, the leader of the pack. Sometimes families operate that way as well, that a family will try to impose a certain way of thinking or behaving on, on a person, and that may be unhealthy, and but the threat is that if you if you don't go along with the standards of the family, then you're going to be an outsider and you're going to be ostracized. So um, how, how does this affect the therapeutic work that's set before us then? So let's say if you're if you're working with somebody who's in that kind of a closed system, then then you really have to be be realistic about the power of the system and that if you get enthusiastic for helping the person escape from the system if you engage in that you're you may be missing just how powerful the system is and how powerfully the the patient is responding to the tug that they're feeling from that outside system uh, another another example a kind of a mini example of that is domestic violence and spousal abuse. Mm. Uh, I'm saying women, but it's not always women. More often, more often it is that that women may have a tremendous amount of difficulty escaping from a marriage like that, where the husband is acting like a cult leader, and 
and is is requiring obedience require is has controlling behavior and it's easy for people to want to escape from something like that but important for us as therapists to recognize that in terms of like internal family systems a part of that patient is very much tied into the uh, into the relationship and and may pay lip service to getting out but will actually manifest a much stronger drive to stay in. So I would imagine then, I mean, this really sounds like um, a, a patient who is in a closed system is in a double bind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so then I would imagine that the therapeutic work would take much longer to help that patient resolve the double bind and, and, and choose one side or the other mm-hmm. and and that then calibrating all of the possible motivations for remaining in therapy would be a really important task before the therapist very often the part of this patient who that wants to stay in the system is not very conscious is not admitted to because that's shameful mm-hmm. and so we really need to kind of support that almost and and treat that part of the person with with compassion and and a positive attitude look you know you really really do feel good about the the sense of belonging that this gives you and that's a terribly hard thing to give up and and so we may need to to represent the the side that is unhealthy so that the patient can realize that they own both sides and, and it's sort of like with the adolescent who's ambivalent about growing up. We need ultimately to help the patient weigh both sides and understand both sides so that they can choose. Because um, if we try to choose for them, guaranteed it will not work. So just to, to wrap up, I think that, um, that uh, motivation is, is a very, very important thing that we pay attention to. I think of, of, of there being five basic uh, change mechanisms and supporting motivation is one of the things that is part of every therapy, even though therapies don't always recognize the importance of it, but we really need to, and we need to pay attention to the things that are on the surface and things that are underneath the surface, and if they're underneath, we need to really work hard to bring those out, including uh, being continually keeping our finger on the pulse of the therapy and asking questions about how it's going. Right, and all of that to feed motivation. And this concludes today's podcast, and, and we hope that um, today's podcast will motivate you to listen. Yep. Uh, we want to thank you for listening to the end. Good job, everybody. We hope it's been helpful to you, and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, titled Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Just to uh, thank everybody and, and say we'll see you next time. All right. See you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.